0: man welcome to crow triple seven radio this is episode 547 it is me and jason today and we're going to talk about tunings and frequencies a lot of people online are catching on uh to things like the difference between 432 and 440 but suffice it to say wherever you choose to come down on it if you change a frequency even slightly you have in fact changed something For me, I think the easiest way to get people to consider what is just not recognized. I mean, think of all the frequencies in our world now uh, compared to, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago, even 40, 50 years ago, it's extreme. And we're going to have to come to a dead reckoning at some point about what this means. After all, uh, matter is matter because of what we're about to talk about, but the whole 432, 440 thing is probably best illustrated on a round cymatic plate. And, and let me let me preface this. There's problems because of what gets used. Uh, the material of the plate, the thickness of the plate, all these little factors go into it. But if you do searches or you do it yourself, it has been my experience that the best example of the difference of those two tunings is to take a round plate and do it. What I notice is that when there is a lot of complexity, of course, that means that the frequency is probably higher, the more complexity, but when it is well-defined, it is akin, or we could think to it, about it as like an old radio. When you're not quite on the channel, there's static and fuzz, and when you're looking at a cymatic plate and there's not good definition in the geometry, maybe that's a way to think about it. Anyhow, Jason, you did a lot of research to write
1: these points. Yep. Hopefully by the time we're done with this, people will have a better understanding of what all this stuff means. And, you know, there's a lot to it, probably a lot more than a lot of folks even realize.
0: I don't think that we are anywhere near where we need to be uh, with regard to the power of frequencies and what what they mean in our, you know, 3D material world and how they are being used. And how much study has gone into it, particularly by places like the military-industrial complex. And when we consider that even just our most basic communications now in nearly every person's pocket, that's all driven by almost a frequency cloud that is nearly everywhere in the uh, developed world anyhow. But let's, uh, let's
1: jump in, see what we can do here. So let's start off with a quote by Rudolf Steiner. All of nature begins to whisper its secrets to us through sounds. Sounds that were previously incomprehensible to our soul now become the meaningful language of nature. Interesting. So
0: we're talking early 1900s, almost certainly, when this is lifted. Uh, maybe the late 1800s. I would imagine it's the early 1900s. But listen to the language he's using uh, that were previously incomprehensible. He's making a
1: statement here about our perception. So let's, let's get into it here, Jason. The cycle per second is a once common English name for the unit of frequency now known as the hertz. Cycles per second may be denoted by CPS or C slash S or ambiguously, just cycles. The term comes from repetitive phenomena, such as sound waves, having a frequency measurable as a number of oscillations or cycles per second. With the organization of the International System of Units in 1960, the cycle per second was officially replaced with the term hertz. Following the introduction of the SI standard, Use of these terms began to fall off in favor of the new unit, with Hertz becoming the dominant convention in both academic and colloquial speech by the 1970s. So
0: There it is. When I was young, uh, people still said cycles per second. As a matter of fact, when I was a roadie, there were some old salty dogs that used to tour with the likes of the Grateful Dead. They liked to boast about, but they were still saying cycles per second. And why, you know, this is a thing we've brought up a number of times. Why would you switch language away? Uh, and this is a name, just to be clear, uh, Hertz is the name of a of a person. Uh, why would you switch from a very good description um, that tells you a critical thing about what you're talking about? After all, the definition, and I don't think we think about this, the opening terms in the definition is this is a repetitive phenomenon. Now think about the frequency cloud that's around us. But to get back to the point, why would we go to Hertz? For me, it's always been the conspiratorial view. Words have meaning. We know what it means to hurt someone. I think it was intentional. There is absolutely no good reason to hang this on someone's name, no matter what they did, when you had a serviceable term that informed you, actually informed you what we're talking about. and Part of it would be dumbing down, I would imagine. I mean, I don't know your your view on it, Jason. What what's your sense of why we would go from a well descriptive term to just a name?
1: Well, some of that is covered in the next bullet point, but again, it seems like they're trying to pull things away from nature and make things just a little more ambiguous.
0: Right. At the very I think you hit it on the head. At the very least. If you don't want to delve where I go, where words have meaning, and we know what hertz means, uh, at the very least, they're removing information. Let's put it that way, dumbing it down.
1: The hertz, the symbol for which is capital H, small z, is the unit of frequency in the International System of Units, or SI, equivalent to one event or cycle per second. It is named after the German physicist Heinrich Hertz, who lived from 1857 to 1894, who made important scientific contributions to the study of electromagnetism. The name was established by the International Electrotechnical Commission, the IEC, in 1935. Heinrich Hertz was the first person to provide conclusive proof of the existence of electromagnetic waves. Hertz are commonly expressed in multitudes, kilohertz, megahertz, gigahertz, terahertz. Some of the unit's most common uses are in the description of periodic waveforms and musical tones, particularly those used in radio and audio-related applications. It is also used to describe the clock speeds at which computers and other electronics are driven.
0: All right, so if I'm not mistaken, and I was trying to do a quick search here, in James Shelby Downard's writing in regard to JFK, uh, there is a completely bizarre connection to Hertz, which goes up to the Hertz rent-a-car. At the time that I had read it, I began to realize how many times in movies I had seen the Hertz rent-a-car logo or or sign put intentionally into a frame. And this, to get the complete, (laughs) you want a conspiracy, to get the complete picture here of why I come down so hard on swapping in the name Hertz. It relates to radio. It relates to JFK and where he came from. And I believe it runs all the way up into the Hertz rent-a-car conglomerate.
1: A440, which is also known as Stuttgart pitch, is the musical pitch corresponding to an audio frequency of 440 hertz, which serves as the current tuning standard for the musical note of A above middle C, or A4 in scientific pitch notation. It is standardized by the International Organization for Standardization as ISO 16. While other frequencies have been and occasionally still are used to tune the first A above middle C, A440 is now commonly used as a reference frequency to calibrate acoustic equipment and to tune pianos, violins, and other musical instruments. So
0: there were minimally three runs and success was had. I don't know if you remember the date. I always think it's 36 or 39, Jason when they finally standardized and got their 440 in the door, uh, there was a bunch of research done, and it's hard to find. People may be able to post something if they look around uh, with serious intent that the part of the move for, I mean, this even got called at some points, the Rockefeller pitch, and the foundations that did it, there was intention here. And I'll just leave it at that because people argue about this. But there was a lot of effort, and the military-industrial complex and Rockefeller and others moved with heavy hands to get this. And as I said, I think it's three runs they made before they successfully got this in. Interestingly enough, uh, the Stuttgart pitch, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Stuttgart was way, 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 way back, a place where they bred military horses. I think the prefix to that word is referring to stud, like you stud a horse. And there's a whole history there with Rome and war and forts and installations for war. Not that it's here or there, but
1: I figured I would mention it as it took the name Stuttgart Pitch. Until the 19th century, there was no coordinated effort to standardize musical pitch and the levels across Europe varied widely. Pitches varied over time, from place to place, and even within the same city. The pitch used for an English cathedral organ in the 17th century, for example, could be as much as five semitones lower than that used for a domestic keyboard instrument in the same city. Because of the way organs were tuned, the pitch of a single organ could even vary over time. Generally, the end of an organ pipe would be tapped with a cone-tuning tool to either curve it inwards to raise the pitch or outwards to lower it. Over a long period of time, cone-tuning can damage the foot of the pipe by crushing the metal at the bottom, which eventually may require that the pipe be removed to be repaired by a pipe maker. The pipe maker can open the end of the foot, remove the damage, and reshape it to its original shape or if it cannot be repaired, replace the damaged foot with a copy of the original.
0: All right, since we're talking about organs, let's pull our minds back around to the cathedrals. The idea that somehow Hertz was the first guy to prove electromagnetic waves, whatever, okay? Maybe in the modern age, he's the first guy to demonstrate it. This was well-known going so far back, and we'll use the cathedrals as the example. Did you know that many of the cathedrals there's as much cathedral under the ground level is as there is above almost always there was a water source under them quite frequently like a uh what do you call it, a well you know like a pool in the middle part in and around the areas people would sing the point i'm making is that these cathedrals were designed to do things and it was to do with sound and music and frequencies as we're talking about. Maybe one of the most interesting breakdowns is from our friend, who I can never remember his name, Jason, who describes the sun in such an interesting way, Dollard. Uh, Mr. Dollard is on tape somewhere describing his interaction with a cathedral and the experience that he went through as he sat in the sweet spot Of one of these cathedrals diminished in what it could do, but demonstrating that frequency, how it was used, and these maybe most magnificent of buildings are all coupled together because it was known and it was used in beneficial ways.
1: Well, there's something that the mainstream history doesn't seem to really mention, and that's that the pipe organ could be tuned to the actual cathedral itself. To ensure proper propagation of the sound waves, I guess you could say.
0: I'm so glad you brought that up. Uh, there is reason to accept that some of these great minds that were putting all this together were literally doing what you were saying. And later, the organists—you know, the people who built the organs—were doing just that. They were tuning it into one big. I don't want to say device, but that's basically what we're talking about. And that level of knowing or science or whatever you would call it, that craft is primarily lost, I would say. I mean, who would you call today to try to do such a thing or even have the knowledge to do it? And again, as far as I know, I don't know if you've seen other things, but I think maybe that dollar clip, do you know which one I'm talking about, Jason?
1: I've seen several where he goes into different aspects of the sort of thing, but I'm not sure exactly which one you're referring to.
0: Yeah, he's talking about work he did on a sound system in a cathedral. You know, that's the closest I've seen in the modern era. But for all intents and purposes, this is probably a lost art, what we're talking about. But we could get back to it. I'm certain that we could get back to it.
1: In the modern era, an acoustic engineer can do this sort of thing. You can tune a room. It's done all the time in professional environments. You can tune a room to be usually not dead, but minimized so that certain waves don't stick out more than others. So that if you're doing mixing and or mastering that you're not having a problem with certain standing waves getting in the way and tricking you to think that there's more of something there that there is not or less of something.
0: You can look these things up. Some of the softwares that have been developed recently are incredible doing exactly what you're talking about in my tenure as a roadie. One of the shifts, I think it happened during that time, and that's the way I remember it. Let me put it that way. There was a problem in big stadiums and like the convention center in San Diego because there was an echo and a slap back off the back wall. And they had begun to put another sets of speakers out that were timed perfectly to kill that slap back. Uh, so the experience of someone in the San Diego Convention Center at a rock show in the 70s would be far different audio wise than up in the 90s when this was starting to change. But where it's come now is uh, it's a whole other world there. You don't really see these big walls of, you know, Marshall cabinets like you used to. It's all been technically lifted a bit in what they can do and what they know about it.
1: Well, one of the big changes that was occurring was in the quality of the PA systems and how much they could push through them. When you start getting back into times like, say, the early Beatles era, the PA systems were pretty much crap. And the guys on stage couldn't hear what they were doing because they didn't have the uh, monitors and things like that like we have today. So as the PA systems got better and better, you were miking everything up as opposed to just having multiple Marshall stacks with every knob turned to 10. All
0: right. I was going to try to look it up real quick, but uh, there has been another recent shift on big outdoor events, like maybe say Coachella or something like that. And I think it's called a single line array or something like that.
1: What you're referring to is called a line array system and what they are is, as opposed to just giant box cabinet PA speakers, they are curved and uh, they're single speakers all put in in an array. And they're lined up above and below each other and they're angled and they do this to uh, suit the environment that they're placed in. Now, the subs, the, the low end, they are generally still just big, great big box speakers because low end frequencies project differently than mids and highs.
0: Right. Kind, kind of like we're getting out of our diapers and getting back to what audio waves mean. But I think one of the main points, Jason, was at those outdoor events, a person standing in one certain place would have a much better audio experience than a person in another and that single line array or whatever it's properly called begins to address that so that it's you know everybody is getting decent audio
1: yeah because with a point source system which is like the single boxes where you just have a billion of them put together for giant events that's exactly correct that depending upon where you were standing you get a different sonic view of what was being projected whereas with the line arrays The idea is to get a much more even dispersion. And that concept is now spilling over and has been for quite a few years now into even small PAs, even the Bose systems that I own and a lot of other companies are doing this. They have miniature line arrays that you can use for just PAs for whatever you're doing. And I own a few of those.
0: You know, can you imagine the spiritual experience? And here's really the difference between how we use so-called audio frequencies in the modern era and go back to the idea of a cathedral people would come in from all over to some of the most beautiful buildings from my point of view that have ever been constructed in the modern eras anyhow that we can still see in glass and stone these beautiful beautiful structures that are not only encoding all these spiritual ideas but you walk in the stained glass by the way much of that stained glass to this day those colors cannot be replicated because of the alchemy that was handed down generation to generation of whoever the craftspeople were that made that. But then to come in and this building tuned inside to give this audio experience and literally lift the spirit, it's a heck of a thing. And when we contrast this period of time with where we are now walking around and basically just almost toxic clouds of frequency all the time, and yet it doesn't bother us, right? We're, we're used to it, almost like the frog in boiling water, but it's a hell of a comparison if you set your mind to it. The tuning
1: fork was invented in the year 1711, which enabled the calibration of pitch, although variation still occurred. For example, a 1740 tuning fork that is said to be associated with Handel, is pitched at A equals 422.5 hertz. Another specimen that is said to be from 1780 is pitched at A 409 hertz, which is approximately a quarter tone lower. A tuning fork that is said to have belonged to Ludwig von Beethoven around the year 1800, which now resides in the British Library, is pitched at A 455.4 hertz. This is over a half tone higher. Towards the end of the 18th century, there was an overall tendency for the A above middle C to be in the range of 400 to 450 hertz. It almost makes you wonder
0: if, back in the day before there was standardization, when a composer sat down, if part of what he was composing was he was choosing. You know, I always wonder about that. I wonder if they chose the frequency that A would be at or how that might be notated. But think about it. I don't know, but how could it be anything
1: but? They must have been aware of it. Well, I did ask our music professor friend, Dr. Brett William Dietz, do you think that what we're playing today, if you have an orchestra playing in 440, it's not going to sound the same as, say, whatever Mozart had been tuned to back then? And he told me, no, it's not going to sound the same, unless they know exactly what he was tuned to and tune accordingly. But that's not always necessarily possible, especially on the fly. Now, if you're doing stuff in software with modern VSTs, you can tune things to very specific pitches. I do it all the time, actually.
0: So we should let people know we have him on the schedule, right? We're about to, we're going to do an interview uh, with Brett, Doctor Brett Dietz, who wrote the entire soundtrack for *Shoot the Moon* and is working with Jason right now to compose a, a new theme song that will play for the podcast because we're just going to. You know, change. We're going to update how we're doing things, but he's on the schedule, isn't he?
1: We haven't picked a date yet, but we've discussed
0: it. Oh yeah, that's right. We were going to wait for the music. I keep forgetting. So basically we're waiting for the new intro song to be completed before we schedule it, but that will be a very interesting episode.
1: Pitch inflation. When instrumental music has risen in prominence relative to vocal music, there has been a consistent tendency for pitch standards to rise. This led to reform efforts on at least two occasions. At the beginning of the 17th century, Michael Pretorius reported in his Encyclopedic Syntagma Musicum that pitch levels have become so high that singers were experiencing severe throat strain and lutenists and viol players were complaining of snapped strings. The standard voice ranges, he cites, show that the pitch level of his time, at least in the part of Germany where he lived, was at least a minor third higher than today's. Solutions to this problem were sporadic and local, but generally involved the establishment of separate standards for voice and organ and for chamber ensembles. Where the two were combined, as for example in a cantata, the singers and instrumentalists might use music written in different keys. This kept pitch inflation at bay for some two centuries. Concert pitch rose further in the 19th century, evidenced by tuning forks of that era in France. The pipe organ tuning fork in Versailles Chapel from 1795 is 390 Hz. An 1810 Paris opera tuning fork sounds at 423 Hz. An 1810 Paris opera tuning fork sounds at A equals 423 Hz. An 1822 fork gives A at 432 Hz. And an 1855 fork gives A at 449 Hz. At La Scala in Milan, the A above middle C rose as high as 451 hertz.
0: Yeah, I was reading about this, how high it had gotten, but do you have any idea? I mean, what what is the claim for the pitch inflation? Why is it tending higher? I didn't quite get that. Did you?
1: No, I'm not actually sure why they kept going higher and higher. It just seemed to be something that was occurring all over the place, all over Europe.
0: It's interesting, you know what it reminds me of, you know, how important of a thing that we are talking about here even shows up in the ancient Indian spiritual tradition of the the Buddha, you know. And I recently finally got a copy of Little Buddha because it's been so censored recently and edited in weird ways that make almost no sense. But one of the teachings that supposedly brings the Buddha out of doing bad things to his body, trying to seek enlightenment, is a musician teaching his disciple that if the string is too slack, it will not play. If the string is too tight, it will snap. If you want to be able to play, you've got to find that balance, that middle way. And that was the idea based on music, frequency, vibration. If you get You know, what's being pointed out here, uh, the middle way, which the Buddha then begins to teach, and that is based on frequency, vibration,
1: and music. Rising pitch put a strain on singers' voices and, largely due to their protests, the French government passed a law on February 16, 1859, that set the A above middle C at 435 hertz. This was the first attempt to standardize pitch on such a scale and was known as the diapason Normal. It became a popular pitch standard outside France as well and has been known at various times as French pitch, continental pitch, or international pitch. An 1885 conference in Vienna established this standard in Italy, Austria, Hungary, Russia, Prussia, Saxony, Sweden, and Württemberg. This was included as Convention of 16th and 19th November, 1885, regarding the establishment of a concert pitch in the Treaty of Versailles in 1919, which formally ended World War One. The diapason normal resulted in middle C being tuned at about 258.65 hertz.
0: Well, isn't it interesting that it's a point six five? but this is interesting. You know, people should go look at 435 and, you know, if we're in the vicinity of World War One, to me, this is really where the intention of whatever power that drives this world drives this world is going to start to go markedly south. And we find the, the fingerprints of it from Steiner. There are so many places that show what a pivotal event World War One was, you know, even the idea of a world war behind that. But the point I'm making is France was really one of the big recipients of the old alchemical treatises, uh, the hermetic philosophy. They really had somehow inherited some very old things. So you've got to wonder if the 435 being implemented in and about World War One was still in a positive mindset or something else. I would guess it was. I would guess that uh, music and concerts at that time were still held in a positive
1: mind by the people in control. British attempts at standardization in the 19th century gave rise to the old Philharmonic pitch standard of about a 452 hertz. Different sources quote slightly different values thought to have been replaced in 1896 by the considerably lower new Philharmonic pitch of a 439 hertz. The high pitch was maintained by Sir Michael Costa for the Crystal Palace Handel Festival's causing the withdrawal of the principal tenor, Sims Reeves, in 1877, though at Singer's insistence, the Birmingham festival pitch was lowered and the organ retuned at that time. At the Queen's Hall in London, the establishment of the Diapason Normal for the Promenade concerts in 1895 and retuning of the organ to A435.5 at 15 degrees Celsius or 59 degrees Fahrenheit to be in tune with A439 in the heated hall caused the Royal Philharmonic Society as well as others. I'm really glad they mentioned all that about temperature, by the way, because temperature has so much to do with the expansion and contraction of wood and metal and how much sound propagates differently depending upon humidity and temperature and all that in a given environment.
0: Consider how complex it would be to have an orchestra that might have a hundred or more people. When we have Dr. Brett Dietz on, we'll talk about the different Areas of an orchestra, like the woodwinds and everything, if you're in a humid place, what that means, what Jason's pointing out. But when I don't know how to break a thing out, I play this game. We all remember what Tesla said about three, six and nine. Thing about that is, is it's demonstrated in eras of time, in age change. It's just demonstrated. If I can get to a three, six, or a nine, then I feel like I have been informed a little bit. And the big time cycle ends always seem to be a nine when summed. If we go back to the previous bull, bullet point where the, print, uh, the, the French in uh, February of 1859 went to four, three, five, what we see is that would be 9, 10, 11, 12. When we reduce that, that's a three. So to me, I think that my supposition that it was positive in nature or the mental intent behind it, probably, isn't it interesting that the Treaty of Versailles is 1919? But moving along in what Jason just read from the British attempts at standardization, now we're in the 19th century. Now we know that the uh, dark shadows out of the box and moving on the world stage, the first one, A goes to five, four, two. So that would be nine, 10, 11. And how much have we covered? About 11. If we move to the next one with the Philharmonic in 1896, it was moved to A equals four, three, nine. So that would be nine. That would be a seven, which is also outside of the three, six, nine that I'm actually looking for. And then lastly, The two from 1895 when they were doing the organ was 435.5, which again, that's an eight. So that's outside the 369. And then the next one is A equals 439 cycles per second. And again, we come around to a seven. And so I don't know. So if I take 43278 and see 432, which everyone talks about, that comes out to the nine. So while I guess I'm not smart enough with enough experience. I am bright enough to catch on that the 369 idea matters. And if we demonstrate with 432, which everyone gravitates towards, and which to me feels more positive, you're going to get a nine. That was a lot of words to try to explain
1: where I was going. In England, the term low pitch was used from 1896 onward to refer to the new Philharmonic Society tuning standard of A equals 439 Hertz at 68 degrees Fahrenheit, while high pitch was used for the older tuning of A equals 452.4 Hertz at 60 degrees Fahrenheit. Although the larger London orchestras were quick to conform to the new low pitch, provincial orchestras continued using the high pitch until at least the 1920s, and most brass bands were still using the high pitch in the mid-1960s. Highland pipe bands continue to use an even sharper tuning around A470 to 480 Hz over a semitone higher than A440. As a result, bagpipes are often perceived as playing in B flat despite being notated in A, as if they were transposing instruments in D flat, and are often tuned to match B flat brass instruments when the two are required to play together. So let me try to make
0: the point again. So basically In England, in 1896, the philharmonic, the standard was A equals 439, okay? And they give a temperature. But my point is 439 reduces to 7. Now, what are they trying to replace? A higher pitch, which is 452. So that's 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, which is A6 in the 369 ideas. And so what's going on here? They're trying to implement their 439, which comes out to 7, But all these bands all the way into the 20s and some into the 60s are trying to hold on to a tuning that reduces to
1: six. I'm just saying, is there something to this? I think there is. Before the standardization on 440 hertz, many countries and organizations followed the French standard since the 1860s of 435 hertz, which had also been the Austrian government's 1885 recommendation. Johann Heinrich Scheibler recommended A440 as a standard in 1834 after inventing the tonometer to measure pitch, and it was approved by the Society of German Natural Scientists and Physicians at a meeting in Stuttgart the same year. The American music industry reached an informal standard of 440 Hz in 1926, and some began using it in instrument manufacturing. In 1936, the American Standards Association recommended that the A above middle C be tuned to 440 Hz. This standard was taken up by the International Organization for Standardization in 1955 as Recommendation R16, before being formalized in 1975 as ISO 16. It is designated A4 in scientific pitch notation because it occurs in the octave. That starts with the fourth C key on a standard 88 key piano keyboard.
0: So basically, here we are again in the 1860s. There's an A, basically, what amounts to a middle A is four, three, five. So that's nine, 10, 11, 12. That reduces to three. They're pushing for 440, which reduces to eight. What I'm noticing is a lot of the probably more pleasant tunes, we know, well, I know from experience that 432 is more experienced, falls within the 369 idea. And what we're seeing is many of these things they're pushing for ends up being sevens and eights. There's something to this. I just wish I knew enough or more to be able to better outline other than just pointing out what Tesla said about the importance as keys to the universe of these numbers.
1: Today, A440 is widely used as concert pitch in the United Kingdom and the United States. The majority of popular music also uses this as standard tuning, and most commercial tuners you might purchase will be hard coded to A440, although many of the better units can be adjusted to alternate pitches. In continental Europe, the frequency of A4 commonly varies between 440 Hz and 444 Hz. In the period instrument movement, a consensus has arisen around a modern Baroque pitch of 415 Hz, with 440 Hz corresponding to A-sharp. A Baroque pitch for some special church music, in particular some German church music, e.g. the pre-Leipzig period cantatas of Bach, known as Chorten pitch at 466 Hz, with 440 Hz corresponding to A-flat, and classical pitch at 427 to 430 hertz. A440 is often used as a tuning reference in just intonation, regardless of the fundamental note or key. The U.S. Time and Frequency Station, WWV, broadcasts a 440 Hz signal at 2 minutes past every hour, with WWVH broadcasting the same tone at the first minute past every hour. This was added in 1936 to aid orchestras in tuning their instruments.
0: Huh. So they basically broadcast the tuning fork, right? That's what they're basically saying here. yep So on the radio, you just tuned into your radio and there was your tuning note and everybody got on board to whatever the frequency. Uh, they're, talk about that. That's one way to control frequency a lot. And, you know, it always occurred to me that by the time pianos are commonplace, whatever that piano is tuned to, and I might be wrong, maybe Brett can comment. It seems to me that it would be easier to tune everything else to a piano than it would be to tune a piano to anything else.
1: That is commonly what is done because it has to be. You can't retune a piano on the fly.
0: No. So like we used to do when I was a roadie, a third of the year was like in theater settings, the old hamp house, Spreckles, old school theater. And they would have this Mozart thing every year. And sometimes it was outside, sometimes it was in, but they used to bring in the best, what they claimed was the best Steinway grand piano, uh, to put center stage. And this really old, old guy would come in and tune that piano. And he would take, I don't know, it would take quite a while, an hour or two, maybe. And then he would go away and let the piano sit and, you know, get used to where it was and get temperature and all that. And he would come and tune it again. And then they would put a guard, like all the all the stagehands and roadies would go to lunch or something and they would put a guard to make sure nobody touched that piano.
1: The sulfagio frequencies make up a six-tone music scale, which was first used in religious music of the 10th century. Music tuned to the frequency of the scale is known to have healing properties and promote better well-being. Evidence of these frequencies is said to exist as far back as early biblical times. To be totally transparent, there is a lot of argument over where this all came from and what it actually means.
0: There is, and it gets heated, but let's go back to my idea of trying to gauge a thing that's hard to know anything about by the number reduction that I've done, or basically standard simple numerology. Saffeggio is, there's the six again, and the three, six, nine, uh, the magical numbers. There's the six tones. If I'm not mistaken, Jason, there are now nine they've discovered, apparently along the way, another three Saffeggio's to complete the circle. But there it is. Uh, There is the value of six showing up in the Sophagios, simply by the number of them, by the way.
1: Sophagio frequencies originated in Western Europe's musical tradition and can be traced back to the 11th century. They are based on the ancient solmization system used in medieval music, in which specific symbols were assigned to each note in a musical scale. This system was used to teach singers How to Read and Sing Music, and it became known as the solfège Scale. The solfège Scale is a six-note scale developed by a Benedictine monk and music theorist Guido D'Arezzo in the 8th century. This later evolved into the seven-note scale commonly used in Western music today. The syllables used to represent musical notes in the Solfegio system were ut, re, mi, fa, sol, la with a seventh note, C, added later to complete the seven-note scale.
0: I would say that this is case in point. So we're going all the way back to the 11th century. Older is closer to source. From my point of view, we have a Benedictine monk and a music theorist. And what are they using? There it is again, a six-note scale. Later, this gets pushed up to seven. But also, is it lost on anybody that within the musical scale is the word soul? The sun shows up, and people may make an argument of this looking up where it comes from, but I'm sorry, words have meaning, and I think the intention is clear, regardless of what might be said about it.
1: The Sophagio frequencies are most commonly associated with the Gregorian chants. The chants are a form of monophonic song of the Roman Catholic faith, dating back to the 9th and 10th centuries. The original six sulfagio frequencies and their said benefits are as follows 396 Hz, associated with liberating guilt and fear, 417 Hz, associated with undoing situations and facilitating change, 528 Hz, associated with transformation and miracles or DNA repair, 639 Hz, associated with connecting relationships. 741 hertz associated with expression solutions, 852 hertz associated with returning to spiritual order.
0: All right, well, let's just play the game real quick within this information about the syphegios within Gregorian chants. Uh, There are a lot of people in the world that would say some of these masterfully built buildings, these edifices, with things like the Gregorian chant in it was a very very powerful spiritual thing to have at your city's disposal. So the first one that was covered is three six nine. So that's nine and nine that resolves to nine. The next one was four seventeen. So that would be seven eight nine ten eleven twelve. That resolves to three. The next one would be five twenty eight eight. 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, that would resolve to six. Next one is six, three, nine. That's nine and nine. That will resolve to nine. That's the uh, connecting relationships, the previous one being so called miracles and DNA repair. Next, we come into 741. Seven and four is 11, plus one is 12, reducing to three. Lastly, we have eight, five, two. Sixteen, fifteen would be six. So every one of those reduces within the magical three, six, nine valuations. And of course, back in this time, there are six notes in these. And how specific is it for these things to be said of these frequencies? One, liberating guilt and fear, undoing situations and facilitating change. Transformation and miracles or DNA repair, connecting relationships, expressions and solutions, and lastly, returning to spiritual order. So let me ask you a question Did they know anything about electromagnetic waves and
1: frequencies back in the day? And for the last point for our one, in the 1970s, Dr. Joseph Puglio, a naturopathic physician and researcher, rediscovered the Sulphagio frequencies after supposedly having been lost for many years. Dr. Puglio says that he came across the solfeggio frequencies while studying the Book of Numbers in the Bible. He noticed that certain passages contained a series of six repeating codes, an ancient six-tone scale, which he believed corresponded to the six notes of the Sulphagio scale. He also found that these codes were linked to a set of ancient frequencies that had been used for healing purposes in biblical times. In 1999, Dr. Puglio published a book called The Healing Codes of Biological Apocalypse, which detailed his findings on the Sulphagio frequencies.
0: All right, there it is. Uh, we're back around to six repeating codes in a six-tone scale. If you go back to the really old kind of hermetic ideas or alchemical ideas, you're constantly going to see our world, what we call Earth, represented by the cube. How many sides has a cube? Six. How many times have you seen someone cleverly take the Christian cross and fold it up into a cube? This used to be the, I don't know whether it was secret at some level, probably was, maybe only the initiative initiated people recognized that the cube was representing here and it was six. It's no secret that the angles of sorrow are found in that representation, 90 degree angles. But as everybody knows, uh, it's a hard go here. We are constantly put in struggles to learn and to advance and to go along. But I don't really think it's debatable that what people Like suppose Tesla told us about 369, I've been looking at it long enough where it appears over and over and over, and it's helpful, doesn't tell me everything I wish I could know, but it does give me a frame of reference when I'm looking at these frequencies and Hertz that I don't have enough knowledge or tools or experience to deal with. What I can do is do a simple reduction and get a whereabout, you know, I'm in the ballpark or a sense of it, maybe is a better way to say What would you add about everything we just covered in uh, hour one, Jason? You want to add anything?
1: Well, to address the tunings situation, I think it should be obvious, even with the brief history that I gave, the tunings were all over the place for centuries. And a standardization really would have benefited everyone so that you could play different pieces together wherever you wanted to go to perform.
0: Well, I'll add this as we wrap up, Jason, the 440 comes to eight of all these supposed Hertz or cycles per second, uh, foundational tunings for the a above middle C. Uh, there was only one that, that I found that was the 440 that resolved to eight. Now, when I think of the numbers in the way that I've done them, what it tells me is if I take two disparate things and I reduce them in this way and say, they both come to six, there's a relationship there. In some way, it's almost like if I was counting beans of things that are alike in some way, that one thing right there would show me there's a commonality or a relationship or maybe a foundational comparison of these two things. And I think that it used to be much, much better known in our world. And when we look at what, as a matter of fact, I would go so far as to say, I don't really even think we totally know or publicly totally know what the cathedrals had on offer. I've done episodes showing you that this is an encoded path that shows a way to higher spiritual humanity, among other things. Go back and look at the dollard clips where he's telling you the importance of frequency and now consider where we are. If there was a period of time where they were making these spiritually elevating edifices and these musical scales and a way to sing them that did these things, how can we make the argument that there is no power and frequency? And then how can we make the argument when we come up to where we are now? It's literally almost like we're frogs in boiling water. We are all swimming in a soup of frequencies. And I think it's pretty commonly agreed that they're probably not the healthiest frequencies we could be exposed to all the time. But here's the weird thing. We don't really notice it, do we? But let me point a thing out. Have you ever known a time where so many people have felt poorly, where so many people are sick, where death occurs just all of a sudden in completely unexpected ways? This, from my point of view, what I notice about the world that I have lived in is the sickest time that I've been aware of. Is there a relationship,
1: I would ask?
0: Anyhow, anything else you want to get in before I wrap up hour one?
1: well let me just say that in my opinion the answer to the question you put out is
0: yes I, I think it's safe to say uh people have to come to this on their own dime but even that reference is lost because alas there are no more payphones. that's been replaced with the tracking negative frequency device in your pocket and if it's an iphone chances are it's taking an infrared picture of you every five seconds Anyhow, with that, we're going to draw hour one of episode 547 to a close. Hour one is free to everybody at crow777radio.com, crrow 777 radio.com, radiocom Members, log in for the free two-hour episode. They get free access to forums. They can create their own forums, free access to comments under every episode, which are topic-specific to any given episode they get free access to the two-hour film called shoot the moon which dr brett deets wrote the soundtrack for it's a hell of a soundtrack by the way and it now has 10 awards out in the world with that i'd like to wish you all a happy healthy and higher-minded new era and i hope to see you logged in as a member for hour two there it is man cheers